encourage you to take your Bibles and open up to the book of Numbers, or if you have the copy of the story with, uh, again, turn to chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the chapter on wandering. Uh, for those that may be visiting today, we're doing a series that's taken us from Genesis to Revelation, covering the themes and the highlights of the Bible as we go through these different books. And the story is just a kind of a Reader's Digest version, in a sense. It takes the actual scripture and then it condenses the parts that it uh, passes over as you read through it. So, a useful, useful way to look at the scripture. All right. As we begin today, I want to pray, and then we're going to get started. Father, as we come into your presence this morning, thank you again for your word. And would you teach us as we look at these stories that talk about Israel's wandering in the wilderness and what we can learn from it. And Father, help our hearts to be in tune with you, to be faithful, to be obedient to what you ask of us so that we would not suffer the kinds of things that happen to them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going on a, on a road trip of sorts. Uh, we're going to take a look at the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, which covers this period of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. So I hope you brought a lunch, because we're going to be here a while, uh, covering these two books. Uh, no, I actually will try to fit it into the appropriate time here. Uh, Pastor Jim was kidding me, though, recently. He said, I can't wait till you get to the Psalms, and you do the Psalms in three points, and try to cover all of that. And uh, I said to Jim, I was thinking afterwards, I go, you know, I think I'll be gone that week and have Jim cover that one. And, and so you can, you can start working on that now, you know. <laughs> All right. But anyway, this is a very fascinating period in Israel's history where they were wandering in the wilderness as God was leading them to the promised land. Well, this morning, uh, as we take a look at this, I wanted to ask you the question, uh, how many of you enjoy a road trip? You like that? If you like it, okay, good. It's sort of like the great American way to do a family vacation. You pack up the car and you, you go somewhere to a destination that you have in mind. Well, I like doing that too. And, you know, we've gone east and we've gone west, but I really love going west, getting away from the traffic, if you will, and, and getting out there and enjoying the mountains. When our boys were young, and we just had Matt and Jason, they were about six and four, we went on a road trip that was going to go through the Black Hills of South Dakota and then to the Rocky Mountains and Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was really psyched about that. I mean, this is going to be great. I'm going to, we're going to spend some time out there. It's going to be really fun. But, you know, when you're traveling with young kids, I mean, there's a couple things you've got to be prepared for because you don't want to have kids whining and complaining in the back seat all the way. And so you bring lots of, you know, toys or games or books or whatever you can to occupy them. And, of course, you've got to have food. You've got to have snacks so that they can eat along the way, too, and enjoy that. But invariably, as you head out on this road trip, you know, they can be excited at first, too. But then comes the question, are we there yet? You know, and, and no, no, it's going to be a long day today. We're going to be driving, you know, and again, you know, are we there yet? Or, Mom, I'm hungry. Or, Dad, i got to go to the bathroom. Or all these kind of things that can delay your travels. 
And as a dad, you know, we're cool and we try to keep our composure on this as we're going along because we want to make time, you know. We want to get going. We don't want to stop for anything. And so it's like, no, just a little farther or, you know, if they're getting out of hand, it's like, don't make me stop the car and come back there, you know. You don't, you don't want to do it, you know. And so you head out on this trip. Well, the other hard thing about road trips can be the unexpected detours and road construction that can delay your travel plans too. And on this uh, particular trip, we were in uh, South Dakota and we were going through Custer State Park and they were doing road construction in the park. And we come up on this road and we're like, okay, now what do we do? And there's this guy who uh, was one of the construction guys that waves us over and he sends us onto this gravel road. So dutifully, you know, we follow the instructions, go onto the gravel road. And as we're going along, this gravel road becomes smaller and smaller. And pretty soon it turns into kind of a, a trail with two ruts going out into the prairie. And I'm going, you know, what is up with this? It looks like we're on an old wagon trail headed out into the into the prairies of South Dakota. And sure enough, we found ourselves right in the middle of a buffalo herd. There, there, there's buffalo all around us, you know, and, and we're out there in our little Plymouth Reliant station wagon. You know, this was before you even had minivans, and I'm thinking, I could use a Jeep right now with four-wheel drive as we're going through this. Well, my first thought when we're out there was, this, this can't be right. I mean, th- you know, there's probably some guy back there at the construction site going, we got another one, you know, <laughs> sent him out there. And, and, and the second thought I had, though, was, this is a great photo opportunity. <laughs> So I stopped the car and I got out to snap a couple pictures of the situation that we were in. And while I'm doing that, Matt, you know, is looking around at these buffalo and their heads are huge on them. And, and he's like, Dad, no, you know, they're, they're big. You know, let's get going. And I snapped a couple of pictures. We got in and continued on our way. And sure enough, we came to a highway and we made our way out. And, you know, it was a pretty interesting side trip and no harm was done except that Matt occasionally still has nightmares about buffalo but um, yeah, it's okay it's, it's all good alright well if you think of Israel wandering in the wilderness it was like a road trip for them God was their guide you know they didn't need GPS they had this cloud that led them by day and a pillar of fire that led them by night Moses was the driver chosen by God to lead Israel. And in the back seat were about two million kids. (laughs) And they were whining and complaining all the way. In Numbers chapter 1 verse 46, it said that there were 603,550 men over 20 years old in the 12 tribes of Israel. 603,000 men. So if you imagine that number plus then women and children, that's where you get an estimate of somewhere between two and three million people that were traveling together through the wilderness. Now just think about that. I mean, that would be like taking the whole Twin Cities metropolitan area. 
and saying, okay, guys, you know, we're going to go on this road trip, and sorry, i got to tell you this, we're going to be walking to Duluth today. And, and that's about what it was. Going from the land of Goshen to Kadesh Barnea was about 120 miles, and so it's like, okay, let's organize these 2 million people into 12 tribes, and we're going to walk. And their destination was the promised land. Well, what happened? Well, that's what's recorded in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And what we see is that Israel complained to Moses. Every step of the way, it seemed, they were complaining. Israel complained about the hardships of the trip. It starts in Numbers chapter 11, where they were grumbling against the Lord. And it says in chapter 11, this would be... uh, Uh, in the story it's starting out at the beginning of the chapter it said now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord and when he heard them his anger was aroused and then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp and when the people cried out to Moses he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down so that place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them Road trips are exciting at first. You know, and if you think about Israel starting out on this adventure, they had just seen some pretty amazing miracles in Egypt. They had seen God perform his wonders over all the gods of the Egyptians. And they had seen God part the Red Sea and destroy Pharaoh's army. And uh, imagine that, this parting of the waters, walking through on dry land between the waters on both sides of you standing up like a wall and you're walking through on dry ground where it had once been this body of water and then when Pharaoh's army tries to follow you the waters close in on them and they are drowned that's pretty amazing what they had just witnessed and now they are going to the promised land a land that they are told is flowing with milk and honey I mean this is great You know, this is really exciting stuff here. And we're going to the promised land. We're no longer going to be slaves. We are free people. Well, their excitement lasted about three days. And then they complained about the hardships along the way. And you can imagine them saying things to Moses like, Moses, you do realize that there are no restaurants in the desert. (laughs) There's no place to stop and get a bite to eat that they know of. There are no rest stops. Uh, It's hot. It's dusty. They are walking along the way. There are snakes and scorpions. There's certainly no water at several points along the way. And they're going, "Uh, Moses, did you think this thing through? I mean, whose idea was this? And then on top of it all, we have to set up and take down, you know, every day or every so often as they made this move. They had to break down their camp and then they had to set it up again. And all along the way, they're probably wondering, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And God was not pleased with their grumbling and complaining. And fire broke out from the Lord among them. Israel not only complained about the hardships, but they also complained about the food. And we see that in verses 4 to 9 as we continue. It said the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. 
He put that in there, you know, that fish was free, you know. And also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And the manna was like coriander seed, and it looked like resin. The people went around gathering it. It it appeared like flakes on the ground every morning. And then they ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. So here's this curious and interesting phenomena. We still don't know exactly what that was. It was a miraculous provision from the Lord. It was called manna. And the word manna in Hebrew is actually a question. It's the question, what is it? What is it? I mean, they, they didn't know. And so every time they're saying manna, they're saying, what is it? We, we don't know. These flakes that appeared on the ground tasted like something made with olive oil. They could grind it up. They could bake it. They could do lots of things with it. But after a while, they didn't like it. And they complained, you know, we were better off in Egypt. Really? Even as slaves? Well, there we had, you know, the leeks, onions, melons, cucumbers, and fish. I mean, here it's just this manna, manna, as they grumbled and complained all along the way. And they said, we want meat to eat. I mean, we want real food. We want something substantial to eat. And so God said, you want meat? I will give you meat to eat. And not for a day or two days or five or ten, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. I will give you meat to eat. As he heard their grumbling and complaining. And God did that. There was a miraculous provision. A wind came up from the Lord, drove quail in from the sea, brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground. Can you imagine that? All around the camp are these quail that have piled up. Just more than they could count. If you can imagine trying to feed that many people in the wilderness with meat for a month. And they went out and gathered quail and they ate it until as that uh, chalk drawing showed, it was coming out of their noses. But while the meat was still in their teeth, still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord once again burned against the people. And he struck them with a severe plague. And the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. That word Kibroth Hatava means graves of craving. Graves of craving. Rather than be content with God's provision, they craved other things. And some of them perished because of it. What was God doing? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, the scripture answers that question, that God was testing them to know what was in their hearts. He was using this period in the wilderness to test them, to test their faith, and to see what was really going on. If you go to the next slide in the book of Deuteronomy, it says this. Moses said, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years? to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you 
that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wow. You recognize the last part of that verse, don't you? It's when Jesus was tested in the wilderness. And Satan came to him and said, Turn these stones into loaves of bread. You're hungry. You've been out here 40 days, 40 nights. Why don't you do it? You have the power to do it. And Jesus would not use his power for selfish ends. And he quoted this verse back to Satan and said, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God was giving them their daily bread, but it was not enough for them. It wasn't good enough. They didn't like God's provision, and they grumbled and complained. You know, there's some interesting lessons that you can learn with the manna. And the danger here for me is not to go too far off on a a side trail or a side point, but I just want to say a couple things about the manna. You know, here was this miraculous provision that came down every morning and they could gather it up enough for all to eat. The manna was just what they needed to sustain them in those years in the wilderness. And they were to share it. They weren't to hoard it. God gave specific instructions. So when you go out to gather this, you know, uh, each one's to have a certain amount for themselves and for their family. And you're not to try and stockpile it or save it up. What was going on with that? Well, if you think about it in this way, you know, this wasn't a survival of the fittest where those who were young and faster could run out and gather more and they get way more than they need, but they're going to get theirs. And those who were weak or disabled or lame couldn't get anything because everybody ran ahead and picked it up before them. It wasn't like that. If you gathered more, you were to share that with your brothers and sisters, those who were in need. And there was enough for everyone. And then when it came to the Sabbath... You know, the day before the Sabbath, they were to gather twice as much, and it didn't spoil. It was enough. They didn't have to work on that Sabbath. They were to rest on that Sabbath, just like God had rested on the seventh day of creation. Some interesting parallels there in terms of what Paul will pick up on in 2 Corinthians 8 when he talks about a time when the Jerusalem church was suffering from a famine and the believers in Macedonia, he was encouraging them to help them. And he was saying, I don't want you to be deprived, but I want you to take out of the surplus that you have been given to help your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem so that they will have enough. Because God's given enough. And so what is it that Paul says we are to learn from this example that there should be that kind of equality? We are to learn to trust God to give us our daily bread and we are to share with God's people who are in need out of what we have been given. And that's a pretty strong statement there that Paul is making that goes back to this example in the wilderness. We aren't to hoard. We aren't to, if we have extra, to just kind of save it up just for ourselves or spend it on our pleasures. But we are to look and say, God, what, what do you want me to do with this? And that's why in the Scripture, you know, at a minimum, we talk about how each of us should be tithing, giving a tithe at 10% of what we have back to the Lord. But there are times when God wants us to go over and above that, to give gifts in situations where we see needs 
so that there might be enough. And to trust God in that, that you're not going to be short, that he will meet your needs too. Thirdly, Israel complained about God's leadership. Who made Moses the leader? And even Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, got into the act and they're grumbling and complaining. In chapter 12, this is on page 73 in the story, it says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. The Lord heard this. Here they are grumbling and complaining about Moses' leadership. Now, everybody else was doing it already. And in your own family, when they start to do that, doesn't that feel a little bit like piling on, you know? It's a little bit like, whoa, really? And God answered their complaint in verses 6 to 8. And he says, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions, and I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, and with him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You know, it's interesting as time will go on, there were three things that were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, this box, this Uh, that Israel brought in the wilderness and would set up inside the Holy of Holies where God would dwell. Inside that Ark of the Covenant, the book of Hebrews tells us that there were three things put in there. A copy of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and thirdly, Aaron's rod that budded in a time when leadership was questioned And all the tribes of Israel brought before them a staff and laid it on the ground, and the one that budded was the one God had chosen. And he had chosen Aaron to be one of the leaders in the priesthood. What those three things symbolized was man's sin. They had rejected God's law. They had broken his law. They had rejected God's provision. They didn't like the manna. And they had rebelled against God's leadership. First Moses, and then Aaron and the priests. And those things represented their sin that needed to be covered on that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. You know, God is concerned about leadership in the church today. Our our, kind of order of how we do things is different, but Paul picks up on this and 1 Timothy 5 when he talks about don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. He talks about leadership in the church and how things are to be dealt with appropriately. There is a need for accountability for our leaders in the church. But in the book of Hebrews, it also states this in terms of following. Hebrews 13, 17 says that we are to obey our leaders and submit to their authority for they keep watch over you. As men who must give an account, obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, so here he talks about this mutual accountability that there is to be in the church. 
You know, it's, you can picture it like this. When we get to heaven, you can think of two lines. There's going to be a line for like pastors and elders and leaders in the church. You don't want to get in that line because it's going to take a long time to go through that. Again, as Dr. Geyser would say, you know, every sermon is reviewable in the final day, and it's going to take a long time. They will give an account, but the kinds of questions that God asks of leaders are these. He's going to ask, did you love my people? Did you feed my sheep? Were you an example to the flock of someone who walked with God? Did you care for them in their needs? And there are those kind of questions that he will ask. But on the other side, on this other line, for those who are part of a church, who are believers in Christ and part of his family, he's going to ask about your followership. And he's going to ask questions of you in saying, did you pray for your leaders? Did you encourage them? Did you follow their example? Did you listen to their teaching? And did you do that in such a way that their work would be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you? God still cares about leadership, and he cares about our attitude toward one another in the body of Christ. And I I share this today not because I've seen any problems. I, I share this actually with great joy for the way that you have been so affirming of leaders in our church and praying for us. But it's an important word that needs to be said in our day. Well, secondly, Israel took a dangerous wrong turn at Kadesh Barnea. You can think of this uh, small area, southern end of the promised land. They came from the land of Goshen. They went south uh, in the Sinai Peninsula down to the place where God would give them the Ten Commandments. And then they went north to Kadesh Barnea, ready to enter the promised land. Uh, Twelve spies were sent to scope out the land. And they came back and they said, you know what? It's everything that God said it would be. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, look at this cluster of grapes we bought. You know, they put it on a pole. It was so big they were carrying it between a couple of the guys. And they're looking at these grapes and it's like, wow, this is huge. But the ten of the twelve spies said, you know what? We shouldn't go. Because when we were in that land, there are giants in that land. And they have large cities that are well fortified. And there's no way we're going to be able to take that land. We can't do it. And we should go back to Egypt. And the two in the minority report, Joshua and Caleb said, we should go because God is with us. And he will give us this land. Two trusted in the power and promises of God. And ten looked at what they could see and said, this is hopeless. There's no way we can do this. We saw that we were grasshoppers in their eyes, and that's exactly what they felt like. And so the people rebelled. They listened to the majority report. They rebelled, and they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And Moses pleaded with the people to obey God. In fact, once again, God was ready to destroy them and start over with Moses and making a whole new people. But Moses interceded once again on their behalf. And God replied that not one of this generation that grumbled against him, that is the Lord, would enter the promised land. 
but their children that they were concerned about would enter it. Listen to what he said in Numbers 14, verses 20 to 24. It's on page 77 in the story. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked, but nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. What should have been a two-week trip to the promised land became a 40-year journey, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It raises the question in our life, too, who will we listen to? And who will we obey? I mean, there are all these voices competing for us. Are we going to listen to the Word of God or are we going to listen to the world and what it says and the world's wisdom and values? I love the song, Voice of Truth, you know, and I think about there are giants in our land who are saying to us it doesn't pay to follow the Lord or it's folly to give away your money to something like that or it's folly to take your time and to do what God says. Why don't you just live for yourself and live for the pleasures of this life and this world? Giants calling out to us too and mocking the Lord. Who will we listen to? Will we trust God to provide for us our daily bread? Will we trust Him in our giving that I will not be short, but I will put Him first and I will honor Him? Will we trust Him in our obedience, not to crave other things like they did, not to crave other things in terms of sexual immorality or dishonesty or greed or coveting, but we will honor Him. And God says, those who honor me, I will honor. Well, thirdly, when we come to the end of Moses' life, Moses will give a farewell speech. And his speech is a call to trust the Lord. And we see that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But Moses himself was not perfect, as we know. And before the people of Israel, Moses also failed to trust God. And that story is recorded in Numbers chapter 20, page 78. The people of Israel were thirsty. And they needed water to drink. And God said to Moses, I want you to take Aaron's staff and I want you to speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out water. Another miracle that was God, God was going to perform. I want you to go and he would direct him. I want you to speak to the rock and water will gush out. Not a little trickle. Water gushing out. You can imagine enough water for again two million people. But instead, Moses let his anger get the best of him. And he lectured the people. And he was upset with how many times they had grumbled and complained. And he let that attitude get the best of him. And he struck the rock, not once, but twice. And it was a rash act, as though speaking would not be enough. And he dishonored God in the sight of the people. And as a result of his disobedience, Moses was not allowed to lead the people into the promised land. 
he would see it. He would stand on the border on the mountains overlooking the whole promised land in front of him. But he could not enter it. Moses' years of obedience did not give him a license to disobey God even once. It wasn't like Moses, you get a pass on this one. You know, you've been been pretty good all along here. You get a pass on this one. No. Moses' disobedience was also a serious thing. And so Moses calls the people together, and in his farewell address, he calls Israel to choose life, to choose life. He sets before them two choices, the way of God or the way of the world, the way of obedience and following the Lord or the way of disobedience. And what he tells them is that obedience and faith leads to life, disobedience leads to death. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. It's on page 87 in the story. He said, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commands, His decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a call to trust and obey the Lord. Well, what do we learn from this chapter of the story? Again, there's a lot of ground we've covered, a lot of things left out that you probably have read and have some questions about too. But let me just highlight a few things that we can learn. Number one, we are on a journey, a road trip ourselves from this life to heaven. And there will be trials and hardship along the way. We're going to go through those things. Through many hardships, we enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here we are in the midst of these trials and hardships, and the question is, what are we going to do with them? And what we see in the scripture is that our ability to live faithfully before the Lord is tied to our constantly remembering God's word. That word remember comes up over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember what he did. Remember his miracles. Remember how he provided for you. Remember who God is. But we need to do that too. In fact, Paul will pick up on that in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 to 13. He tells us this, that these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. And we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. And we should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. 
Paul goes through all of these things that happen there and he says, don't be like that. These were warnings written for our instruction. And if you think you stand, be careful. Be careful lest you fall. For no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Lord is looking for followers who will persistently honor and trust him. And finally, the fifth one, maybe the hardest, no whining allowed. (laughs) You know, it's not that we can't bring our concerns and our trials and our burdens to the Lord. We can. He wants us to do that. And we can pour out our heart before the Lord, our lament before the Lord. But there's a line that can be crossed where sharing our needs or sharing how we're feeling can move into unbelief or ingratitude, a lack of thankfulness to the Lord and a lack of trust in His provision. Where that line is, the Holy Spirit guides us. But Paul will write in Philippians 2 and he'll say, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That's our calling. That's our calling. Let's pray. Father, as we walk with you in this life and we go through our trials in our wandering, Lord, would you help us to be faithful, empower us by your Holy Spirit that we might obey you and follow you fully. And Lord, when we are tempted to grumble and complain, would you remind us of how generous your provision for us is through Christ our Savior and in all of the good gifts that you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.